Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Charles Darwin, John James Audubon, Henry David Thoreau, and Rachel Carson. Each of them has contributed to our understanding of biology, natural history, even conservation. And they're all considered naturalists. It's a title many of us may not actively think about or work towards in our daily lives. But why not? In place of the typical resolution set for the new year, today where we live, we consider ways we can become better connected to the natural world. When's the last time you took a walk without looking at your smartphone? What did you notice? You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, I know I've always felt better when I'm outside, whether on a trail in the woods or in my garden, but I've never been good at recording what I observe. Then I heard about The Naturalist's Notebook. Nathaniel Wheelwright is co-author of the book. In it, he writes, if you want to know more about nature, scrutinize, touch, listen, smell, measure. So where do we begin? Nat joins us by phone from Maine to tell us more. Uh, Nat, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you. I should mention you're Professor Emeritus of Natural Sciences at Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine, as well as co-author of this book, The Naturalist Notebook. So tell us first, how do you define uh, a naturalist? I think a naturalist is anybody who pays attention to the world around him or her. Doesn't have to be a trained scientist, really. Um, just being mindful, being sentient, opening up your nostrils and your eyes and your ears, and enjoying the ride. Uh, We understand you grew up in the Berkshires, and I'm curious uh, when you started to develop this uh, connection or love of nature. When did it, at what age did I begin? Yes. A naturalist? Um, Boy, it's hard to actually pin it down. I mean, I kind of grew up in an old-fashioned way in the sense that, you know, you you hear old folks my age, and I'm in my mid-60s, kind of grumble about youth. Uh, Hopefully you won't hear me grumble about them, but we we definitely did live outdoors a lot more than you see people these days. And so I think right as a child, I was out doing tasks and and chores and um, building forts. And so I suppose I was a naturalist from the get-go. As soon as I was standing on my own two feet, I was lucky enough to grow up on a farm in western Massachusetts. But that wasn't all that unusual back then. Most of the kids I went to school with either grew up on farms or or had uncles or grandparents who were farmers. So there was a stronger connection, I think, with the land. Even kids who lived in the suburbs were out biking. and So I think we were all naturalists without calling ourselves that. When we think about the term, you also write about an 18th century Englishman, um, Gilbert White. Tell us about him and how um, what he wrote helped uh, others uh, stay in tune uh, with nature and to think about uh, the world around them. Well, Gilbert White. Gilbert White was a uh, a vicar uh, in living in England. He considered himself sort of a parochial priest. And we think of parochial as being a kind of a, a negative term now in that you're narrow and, and um, uh, specialized maybe in what you think about. But that's actually what makes a great naturalist. And he, in the mid-18th century, was paying attention to things in his parish backyard. 
and he kept a, a garden journal and a nature journal. He recorded when the swallows returned from migration and when he planted beans and how many, um, what his crops were like. But he did this for 20 years, and he was one of the very first people who paid such close attention to nature in his backyard that he could anticipate the rhythms of it. And I think when you read his book, The Natural History of Selborne, which is one of the most widely published books, I think there are over 200 editions of this, you realize that this was a person absolutely connected with nature through his own personal observations. And I would say anybody can do the same thing in your own backyard. Uh, We know today that we are um, often connected to our laptops, our smartphones, uh, uh, a screen always nearby. Um, Some would say that we are obsessed with uh, technology. And so um, how does that impact uh, our uh, observations in nature? And are people less connected uh, today? You had mentioned when you were growing up, people seem to be more connected. Well, you can take that technology and and either make it an an enemy of being a naturalist or or an ally. Um, I choose to make it an ally in the sense that now for the first time in history, I can pick up a small moth and take a picture with my smartphone and drop that image into Google search and identify it. And literally just 15 or 20 years ago, if I was doing a study of insects, I would have to capture an insect, kill it, carefully pin it, stick it in a box, mail it to the systematic entomology laboratory in Washington, D.C., and hope that one of the world's few experts on that group of insects could send me a name. Now you can just do it in the woods, and then you can do it again. So, so we don't have to be, we can, we can use this technology to become better naturalists. Um, it's just a matter of not letting it control yourself. And mm. I like to give it a break. When I'm out in the woods, believe me, the last thing I want is to feel a tremble in my pocket of, of someone calling me to, <laughs> or some news item, that's uh, some tweet that's happened. I just don't want to hear it. I'd rather hear birdsong. You and me both, uh, Nat. Uh, I'm speaking with Nathaniel Wilwright, Professor Emeritus of Natural Sciences at Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine. He's co-author of the book, The Naturalist Notebook. Um, is this something uh, for our listeners, uh, is this something that you're thinking about uh, wanting to be better at, observing uh, the natural world around you? What do you notice uh, where you live? Uh, what changes or discoveries in your backyard? You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, Nat, on the flip side, when we think about um, so much attention on uh, the changing climate, do you find uh, that people are more interested in wanting to know more about what is in their backyard? Did that prompt you to write this book? What prompted me to write the book was partly the interest that I see, especially in, in college students, like my wonderful Bowdoin students. They are, they're, I, I think it's fair to say that they are aware that they aren't as connected with nature as their parents and their grandparents, and they want to turn that around. They're also deeply concerned about the state of the world and anxious about climate change, and they want to make a difference. And so they're looking for ways to connect themselves to their communities and, and to, their, their, to, to themselves just, just to feel grounded. Um, but they don't really know where to begin. So that was, that was uh, a motivation. Um, the other motivation was that I realized I've been keeping a very, very simple, kind of an unusual nature journal myself for 30 years. Um, it, it started out as a gift from my sister-in-law, Tori Stevens, who gave me a, um, 
she gave me a handmade calendar that has 10 dates across the top and 10 years down along the side. So those 10 by 10 gives you 100 small squares when you open this up. And in each small square, it, that corresponds to a particular day. And you'd, I'd write down a simple little note. It's such a small square, there's not much space to write much, so I'd use an abbreviation. And then I'd realize as the year went around and repeated itself, I could look up simply on the same page and start to see patterns. And after doing this for five or ten years, I thought, oh my gosh, it's teaching me to anticipate what's happening in nature. Nature's becoming predictable and a special friend. And so I thought, is there a way that I could share this, this technique for paying attention to nature without really having to invest a lot? So that was kind of the origin, those two impulses that were, we're in a complicated period of time where I think citizen science is more and more important, especially when there's kind of a, a, a fallback in federal government protection for the environment. It's time for citizens to step up and pay attention to changes in their own backyard. And this is a really great tool to know what those changes look like and then, then have a call to action to, to, to fix things. So we'll get into more about how uh, listeners can track uh, what they're seeing and observing. Uh, but if we're uh, just thinking about uh, the beginning steps, uh, Nat, uh, um, how do you sort out uh, what to focus on? Because maybe uh, someone is uh, more attracted to the birds in their backyard. Someone else might uh, be paying attention to the insects in their garden. Um, how do you, I guess, focus in on something before uh, they begin to track the changes that they're noticing? That's such a wonderful question, and it's got such a simple answer. I'm going to, I'll answer it somewhat indirectly by giving you an anecdote. Um, I was uh, talking about the book at some place, and a woman came up from New York City, and she said that she had bought the book, and with some trepidation, she said she grew up in the city, she knew nothing about nature, and she read the, in the book that we were, uh, Bernd Heinrich, my co-author, and I were encouraging anybody to become a naturalist because we truly believe anyone who's paying attention to nature is becoming a naturalist already. So she said, well, I don't even know what to, to look at, which is kind of your question. So on her own, she said, I decided that every morning I would go over to the thermometer and I would write down the temperature. And after two weeks, she said, I started to realize I'm hearing birdsong and I'm starting to smell flowers, and I'm starting to see the colors of leaves and the angles that they hang on the twigs. And it was that simple act of paying attention to one thing that opened her senses to other things. So I guess what my advice to, to someone just becoming a naturalist who has sort of a, an urge to feel more connected to where they live is to start with whatever makes your pulse quicken a little bit. And it could be it could be the weather, it could be... Uh, it could be birds at your bird feeder. It could be flowers in your garden. And start there, and you'll find that the sort of the lights will turn on. And that's what I found. I mean, I started mostly with birds and insects and plants, and now I'm paying attention to lichens and sedges and things that I never knew anything about. Mm. Uh, when you open up the Naturalist Notebook, uh, you walk us through uh, those steps. But uh, later on, uh, you do emphasize uh, maybe um, challenging the listener to learn about uh, different classifications. Uh, so can you walk us through that? Because um, maybe it's intimidating for some people to think about uh, learning uh, specific classifications for, say, the insects they're seeing in their backyard. Well, <laughs> you know what I would say? I'd say um, 
I would say put in the batteries and push a little bit harder and you will discover just an, an enormous amount of pleasure in, in seeing relationships. That's, that's what being a great naturalist is all about, I think. Not just knowing the names of one thing, but knowing where they fit in more broadly. So I'll give you an example. Um, for bird watchers, they can appreciate this. Uh, certain groups of birds like warblers in the fall and shorebirds or gulls are not that easy to identify one from another. But, but just knowing that it's a gull or knowing that it's a shorebird or a warbler means that you're thinking like a taxonomist, you, that you recognize that there are groups of closely related organisms, species of animals or plants, and they, they, they show that common evolutionary history and how they look. They just look similar. And if you can develop an eye for that, you're, you're thinking like a systematist, and it's going to help you identify them. Um, so that's why we encourage not just learning one name after another, but rather learning where they fit in, who their relatives are. And um, it's, it's a wonderful tool for sharpening your eye and just feeling part of this whole wonderful scheme around us. So you mentioned uh, the importance of having a journal. Uh, what field guides uh, could someone pick up um, that could help them? And is it, is it important to have a certain type of camera, binocular, as you, as you, if you take a walk around uh, your neighborhood? Oh, boy. I, well, you're talking to somebody who, who wouldn't go out to the outhouse without a pair of binoculars around my neck. Um, in some of the remote places I've been, <clears throat> you never know what you're going to see there. But... Um, so I think binoculars are fabulous, and you, if you turn them upside down and look through the big end, you can use them as a hand lens, so it's a twofer. Um, you don't need any particular tools. Now there are so many amazing um, apps and um, websites for identifying just about anything you can imagine. It used to be that the easy groups, which were the birds and the flowers and the trees, uh, had great field guides, but nothing else did. Now you can get field guides to the dragonflies and damselflies. You can buy field guides to the micro moths, um, even field guides to lichens. So there's magnificent, uh, of course, the Peterson Field Guide series is a great one, and David Sibley's series. Um, they're, all, they're all great, but you can also do it for free online. My guest today is Nathaniel Wheelwright, Professor Emeritus of Natural Sciences at Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine. Uh, today we're talking about ways uh, all of us can become better connected uh, to the world around us. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, Nat and his co-author, Bernd Heinrich, uh, wrote the book, The Naturalist Notebook, and we're talking about uh, some of the, the tips and uh, suggestions of learning to be a better observer. Uh, we got a tweet from a listener uh, Nat uh, Jill, who writes, I work from home and frequently take walks during my lunch break. I'm fortunate to have lots of open spaces around my home. I love stopping when I hear movement in the bramble to spy on the birds. When I do this, I'm flooded with a sense of joy that I don't get anywhere else. And I guess it's the other side of when you think about uh, what it means to be a naturalist. It's important, uh, again, uh, to learn about the different species um, and check out um, how the world around us is changing. But also there's that connection that um, um, that emotion uh, that um, people feel uh, when they take the time uh, to notice uh, something uh, like the birds or the, or the trees or how uh, their garden is changing year after year. Well, everyone's going to respond differently, but I think that you're, you're the person who just communicated with you all expressed it so beautifully. That's, that's how 
that's how I think all of us can feel when we when we have a connection with nature. Some, it's, it's euphoric, <laughs> and it's a wonderful therapy. And at a time in our history, it, it seems when there's a, really a lot of dispiriting news and it's it's bombarding you. Uh, and if you can just tune that out a little bit and and put some speed bumps in your life, move slowly and and become aware of where you are, um, it's, a, it's a joyful experience. Uh, we mentioned that your book includes uh, uh, this five-year calendar journal. Tell us why uh, the five-year and um, some uh, easy mistakes to make if you're thinking about, well, I want to track uh, what I'm seeing, uh, but you don't want to get uh, too carried away. Um, give us some ideas of if somebody wants to start in January, uh, Nat, uh, using this uh, notebook, uh, how to track what they're observing. Well, first of all, I'd say start today, not wait till January. <laughs> but if um, if you must wait until January, that's fine. It has a certain certain tidiness to it all. Um, are there any mistakes? The, the the mistake I think a lot of people make is trying to write down too much. Um, most of us have pretty busy lives. You know, you have children to hustle around here and there, and pets to take care of, and jobs, and so on. And so if it becomes too burdensome to record what it is that you're, you're interested in, you're, if you're like me, you're unlikely to continue it. So the trick, of, I think, is to make it super simple, um, not feel any guilt. That's another mistake I think people have. I mean, how many of us started journals maybe in our teens during the summer, and I'm going to write down all my deep thoughts, and it just takes too much work and time. We don't have that luxury. And so we ground to a halt after a, a couple of weeks. Um, I've found with this just by um, I can I can uh, eat a piece of toast over breakfast while I'm looking out the window, and then with my right hand I'll pick up a pencil and I'll write down tree swallow or or well, particular rhododendron flower. And it takes me 15 seconds, and I'm back uh, eating breakfast and preparing for my day. So the trick is to make your observations really simple, really. Uh, abbreviated and then but sustainable because the joy comes when the calendar turns and you look back at what you wrote last year and realize oh my goodness the tree swallows come back within two days of each other every year and now you've learned something about the biology of something in your neighborhood and you can also make predictions it, it feels like magic I should mention the Naturalist Notebook that you co-authored with Bernd Heinrich has beautiful illustrations, I think, that uh, Bernd did. And it, it walks uh, through uh, the reader of how uh, to make sketches. And that's part of it, too, not just uh, writing down what you see, but to be able uh, to draw these sketches uh, and how that contributes to um, these observations, Ned. Yeah, well, well, Bernd is the artist, not, not me, but anybody can make sketches. And he is a self-taught artist. He told me that he is still using the original paint set with the 12 watercolor bins. I think he's had to replace black and one other color over the decades. But he is such a careful observer, and I think when you draw and when you paint, it forces you to look at dimensions and shades of color and details, and that's where a lot of the pleasure comes from as well. Um, the, the journal that that um, we designed here, the five-year journal, and you asked why five years, so I'll answer that too. Um, it doesn't have a lot of space for drawing, mm -hmm. but what I would recommend doing is, um, let's say you've got a particular 
a particular date, it's the 20th of December 2018, you could make a small note in the corner of that square that corresponds with that date that refers to uh, your watercolor journal. And you could now take as much time as you wanted and make as big a painting as, as you would like. And it's kind of cross-referenced. And so you've got the information in, in a time context, which is how you learn what the rhythms of nature are all about. So it can be a, a wonderful tool. Um, why five years, you had asked. <clears throat> My, I, I had mentioned earlier that the original journal that I had was a 10-year by uh, 10 days, so 100 squares. This is eight days and five years. And I think um, Story Publishing, our publisher, w which did an absolutely spectacular job producing the book, wanted a, a shorter time period because, especially for beginning naturalists, the thought of doing something for 10 years is a bit daunting, and most of us are moving around, so they just thought that five was uh, just a friendlier way to encourage people to get involved, and that's, that's probably true. Once you get the habit, you're not going to drop it, and you can make your own 10 by 10 calendar just the way I used to. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. David's calling from the quiet corner. Oh, David is uh, no longer there. Um, so we'll try to take uh, more uh, calls after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today, Nathaniel Wheelwright, Professor Emeritus of Natural Sciences at Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine, and co-author of The Naturalist Notebook. Coming up, we're going to learn about a program in Connecticut that helps residents become more observant. And how do you stay connected to the outdoors? Are you one of the millions of Americans who are alienated from nature? There's actually a term for this called nature deficit disorder. We're going to talk more about that and take your calls to 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We've been learning what it means to be a naturalist with guest Nat Nathaniel Wilwright, Professor Emeritus of Natural Sciences at Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine, and co-author of the book, The Naturalist Notebook. Now, do you make a point to spend time outside? What do you notice about nature where you live? Join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, earlier, Nat was giving us suggestions on the small steps people can take to become better connected with where they live. And it turns out there's an actual Connecticut program for people who want to learn about becoming natural. Naturalist. For more, joining me now in studio is Brad Robinson, instructor of the Master Naturalist Program at the James L. Goodwin Conservation Center in Hampton, Connecticut. Brad, welcome to our show. Morning. Thank you for having me. I've been familiar with the Master Gardener Program in Connecticut, so I was happy to hear about the Master Naturalist Program. Tell us about this. Where did the idea come from? Sure. Um, Master Naturalist Programs are not unusual throughout the country. There's you know, a couple dozen in different states throughout the country. But out in Hampton, the Friends of Goodwin Forest, um, along with the Connecticut Forest and Park Association and DEEP, put together this program. And I need to credit the, the founder and the originator, Juan Sanchez, who was the naturalist at Goodwin Forest for many years. And, you know, really wanting to put this together and, as you say, you know, provide a somewhat more formal way for people to really become connected with nature and, you know, learn more natural history and become naturalist. And very importantly, um, 
the whole idea is to spread the word, to become um, real spokespersons for getting out and, as um, Matt said, paying attention, which is key to any part of being a naturalist. And as we learn uh, to um, be better about uh, what we observe and to track it, we can then contribute to citizen science projects? Sure. Um, there's been graduate students who have had um, uh, schemes where they want us to um, you know, look for uh, caterpillars in the spring and, and even have some formalized uh, techniques. You know, you'll whack a branch 10 times over a sheet and count how many caterpillars fall in and that sort of thing. And that really helped him in his um, dissertation project. And we have contacts at the University of Connecticut where we, um, you know, have some interaction and, and help them you know, with any sorts of things that they need. Tell us how the program is broken up. I understand there's two levels. And who are the people that are applying? Yeah, I mean, we get all kinds of interesting people from really professional um, environmental science teachers in middle school and high schools to music teachers and journalists and nature writers and veterinarians. I mean, all kinds of folks. Um, the The program, as you say, is in two levels. We have run two six- or seven-week um, sessions. The level one is in the spring, and we have sections on plants and soils, on mammals, on birds, um, wetlands and watercourses, forestry. Um, we have a section we're adding on insects. Then for the level two, which is run every other year in the fall, we have sections again on mammals and, and insects in wetlands, forestry, and the point there is that we actually bring in other outside experts to talk more in detail about these particular subjects. And the time commitment uh, for this kind of program? It, um, the classes themselves are Saturdays from 9 to 3, mostly day Saturdays for six or seven weeks in the spring. Um, we really want people to make most of the classes. And uh, importantly, though, we also have um, some field trips that we send them on, um, and more accurately lead, and there's other programs that we encourage them to attend. And um, they also have to do a research project, you know, pick something that's really very interesting to them and um, look at it, and it can be just about anything. So there's a mix between uh, classroom time and then being outside? We endeavor to get people outside as much as possible. Um, it's kind of funny, though, because you know, once we're outside, we tend to move very slowly. Um, it's not like we're on a, a power walk by any stretch. You know, <laughs> It's the question of you know, taking an hour to go 100 yards because we can just find everything new in every few feet. Do you encourage journaling? We, we heard uh, from uh, Nathaniel Wheelwright again in this book, The Naturalist Notebook, about uh, uh, suggestions about how to be better at um, tracking what they're seeing. Yeah, I mean, we do encourage. It's not a requirement. And I, I must confess with a great deal of guilt that I don't keep a naturalist journal. Um, that's one New Year's resolution I never keep. So I think I'm going to try to do it. Maybe I'll buy Nathaniel's book and um, start working on that. But um, yeah, we do encourage people to take notes and pay attention. And it sometimes is really helpful to organize that by writing it down, as Nat said. Uh, today, we're talking about um, how we can all learn to become better connected to the world, what it means to be a naturalist. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Bill's calling from Wyndham. Bill, go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, 
I'm calling, as it turns out, uh, Brad may recognize my voice because I was in that first class of the Master Naturalist program. Um, and uh, I'm, I was, I'm glad to call because uh, I heard the title of, the, of your program. Um, I had a, a couple of, of references. I've always been a hiker and, a, and fortunately, a kayaker. And so I, the time outside is just a wonderful experience for me and always has been. But it was enhanced by a few things. The, a, a, at the Audubon Society uh, put on a citizen science program, which several years ago I went through. That was wonderful. And um, also Museum of Natural History at UConn puts on wonderful programs about uh, natural history, of course. And, and then finally, a book by a Connecticut author whose name is Catherine Hawsworth, that's with a K and H-A-U-S-W-I-R-T-H, called The Book of Noticing. And it's collections and about her connections with nature. I actually heard her speak last year uh, at, the, at the Goodwin Conservation Center. Um, so all of these things are wonderful. And, and just my, my last comment is the research that I did uh, while living near a pond, a 23-acre pond in Wyndham, was about eastern painted turtles. And uh, as a result of that, I made connections with herpetologists at the University of Connecticut and also Butler University about some things that hadn't been noticed or at least published before about the, uh, about the lives of eastern painted turtles, uh, some having to do with survival and, and, and one particular observation, a, a special connection of the turtles with nesting red-winged blackbirds. Uh, I did all of my studies from a kayak. Now I go back and I work at uh, and help out as a volunteer at Goodwin, and it's a wonderful experience working with adults and children uh, as they go out and 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 learn more about with me each time about about nature. Well, Bill, thank you for those excellent resources, and uh, good to hear the, uh, from a, a former uh, student and yeah, one Bill's of Bill's uh, an alum, um, and it's just a really good um, example on how people can find something interesting and just really run with it. And interestingly enough, also, Catherine Houseworth is, um, was one of our students in the program this past spring. Again, we're talking about what it means to become a naturalist here on Where We Live. In studio with me, Brad Robinson, instructor of the Master Naturalist Program at the James L. Goodwin Conservation Center in Hampton, Connecticut. On the phone with us, uh, Nathaniel Wheelwright, professor emeritus of natural sciences at Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine, co-author of the book, The Naturalist Notebook. Uh, Now, what do you think about this Master Naturalist Program? I know in the book you talk about for people who don't know where to begin, find find someone who's actually experienced and go on a walk with them. With this, <laughs> I'll tell you, I wish, uh, I wish I had an opportunity to sit in on some of those classes. Uh, they sound absolutely fabulous. There are master naturalist programs all over the country. There's a great one in Maine as well, associated with uh, Maine Audubon. And what I really liked about Bill's comments is that clearly he, he's got the bug. Uh, I'm sure he was a naturalist beforehand, but it, it probably gave him some new tools. And one of them was one that we stress in our book, which is to become a little bit more intimate with nature than the average person might think you would want to be by doing simple experiments and doing systematic observations. And when you, you can sort of play scientist without having to be a, a nerd or, or to be trained as a scientist. And the other thing, two things that he said uh, really rang a bell with me. One, he's gone back to teach others, and that's a great way to become a better naturalist and to make the world a better place by sharing what you've learned. And then 
what falls out of that, and something that we stress in the book, is that you can take your newfound skills as a naturalist and contribute to our understanding of how the environment works and address some issues like climate change and its effect on, let's say, um, nesting behavior of eastern painted turtles. So um, it becomes much more than just being a naturalist. You become part of a community and you become part of the solution instead of the problem. So that's, that's what a wonderful program. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Cindy's calling from West Hartford. Cindy, go ahead. Good morning. Um, I am just delighted to uh, hear Nat Wainwright's voice. Um, my uh, son graduated from uh, Bowdoin and studied under Nat in the 90s and uh, is now a professor at the University of Washington, Washington in Seattle and uh, a Nature Conservancy fellow and very involved in climate change, um, studying an, um, animal behavior projections. Um, and That's not uh, Josh Lawler by any chance. It is. Oh, it goodness. Is. <laughs> we made a connection. Don't tell him hi. Oh, I'm thrilled to hear your voice because you're the reason indirectly why I got involved in bird watching and... Um, uh, I do the count for um, <clears throat> Cornell, the Cornell Bird Watch, and um, you know the the weekly count. So every five days, I'm counting my birds and writing them down and seeing interesting changes in things. And over the years, how many, how f- many fewer birds I have at my feeders. Um, I I keep being surprised that the the numbers are just you know less than they used to be. And um, but also, you know, loving, see, looking forward to the cardinals in the snow and the flash of the gold, the goldfinches in the spring, and um, all that. And I, um, I walk all the time, and I, I, I just am elated and delighted to be out in nature. And I think I got a lot of that from um, Josh's inspiration, and you know how enthusiastic he is about everything. Well, thank you, Cindy, uh, for your call, uh, and good to hear about that connection again to uh, our guest, uh, Nathaniel Wheelwright, who's the co-author of the book, The Naturalist Notebook. Uh, you know, Cindy touched on something that I wanted to bring up, uh, Nat, and that's is as we become more observant um, about uh, the species uh, in our backyard, or uh, this maybe the the woods that we like to. Uh, take a trek in. Can it be discouraging where when you might have noticed uh, certain types of birds one year and you may not notice them again as we hear again so much about uh, the headlines of how we're seeing uh, species being diminished? Would you like me to be honest? Sure. <laughs> I was, uh, Cindy did touch on something really important, which is the more you notice about the environment, the more your senses are tuned in to things the bigger the risk is that you're going to start to see some things that are in decline. Um, I I don't know if I would say I've had the privilege or the misfortune of holding in my hand species that are no longer uh, with us, that are are extinct, Uh, the golden toad in Costa Rica, for example. And that is a a deeply saddening thing. Um, So this is the risk of of falling in love, Uh, that you may lose your loved one. Um, whereas if you were just clueless, uh, it wouldn't be painful that way. That said, um, the joys of all the other um, loves that you you find in nature much more than compensate for it, and plus it puts you in a position where you can possibly do something about it. Sometimes when I get discouraged about the species of birds that have declined, and I could list a whole bunch of them, 
interestingly, many of them have names like common, um, and yet they're no longer common. But then I remember things that didn't used to be around in my youth, like bald eagles and ospreys and wild turkeys and moose. Um, so some wonderfully charismatic species are actually rebounding, and they're rebounding because of state and federal programs to protect them and their habitat. So that comes from understanding their biology, and that comes from all the contributions all of us can make. So we can turn things around with knowledge and with action. I want to go back to our in-studio guest, uh, Brad Robinson, instructor of the Master Naturalist Program at the James L. Goodwin Conservation Center in Hampton, Connecticut. Um, You've had this program now for a few years. Right. um, The first class was in 2014. Um, I actually joined as a student in 2015, and um, immediately after retiring, ironically enough, from deep, um, and was just immediately entranced. And um, after going through the program, both levels, the then instructor, Juan Sanchez, called me up one day and says, do you want to help me teach it? And I was a little bit flabbergasted and very flattered and said, of course. Um, then and a little bit later, he says, and by the way, you're going to take it over, at which point I was, you know, rather surprised, but, you know, very pleased because it's something that I've always had a passion for is being outside. I mean, I'm actually one of these people who's trained as a scientist. Um, my, my background is in ecology, which I only partially facetiously say is natural history with calculus. Um, but it was just a wonderful fit for me. And every year we unfortunately have to turn people away who apply for the program because we just have a limited amount of space. We only have room and for about 20 people for each session, and we typically get double that in terms of applications. Um, So there is some interest in various nature centers and moving the program to other places, and we're exploring that and trying to figure out how to do that, but it's something we really like to do. I saw you nodding in agreement as we heard Nat talk about uh, the resurgence of the bald eagle, as well as uh, the wild turkey. I know in Connecticut we talked about uh, Deep's involvement with getting the wild turkey back uh, to the state of Connecticut, and I'm curious if you could just talk uh, briefly when you have your students before you, um, you know, about how how it's unique to be here in the state, like some things that they should be looking out for the richness of our of our surroundings. Yeah, I mean, Connecticut is um, obviously, what, the third smallest state in the country, but it's got an amazingly diverse set of ecosystems from the shore to the salt marsh to the hardwood forest to the you know, plains inland and so forth. Um, we, we go to different habitats and just try to see what's there. Um, you know, I remember as a kid never seeing an osprey and I grew up in Michigan where there's plenty of water, um, never seeing even cormorants and certainly not bald eagles. Now, I mean, I wouldn't call them common, but they're common enough so that you can pretty reliably see them on a fairly regular basis. And the, the other thing that, you know, we need to remember that even though we're an urban, suburban type of state, there are plenty of wild little corners in all parts of the state, whether you're in suburbia, whether you're in the city. Um, there's, you know, Keeney Park in Hartford has got a lot of, you know, wild spaces there. I've seen moose tracks near Keeney Park, and there's plenty of coyotes and turkeys just abutting it as well. So there's plenty going on all over the state. Uh, Barbara's calling where we live from Bethlehem. Barbara, go ahead. Oh, all right. Um, I'm from Bethlehem, and I kind of had the same story that your guest does. Um, I received a day book 
from a friend. Um, it's Celia Saxter's day book. I don't know whether you're familiar with her, but she had her. She was a gardener, and um, paintings were involved by Child Hassan, a famous painter. Anyhow, I decided because her her day book was so lovely that I would um, just. I guess journal the same thing, except just every day for a year, which I did do, and I put my watercolors in and my poems that I had written that coincide with, you know, the the prose that I wrote as well. And my question is, or my curiosity is, um, I would like to put it in book form. I don't necessarily, it'd be nice to have it published. I mean, who wouldn't want that? But it's been hanging around for I don't even want to tell you how long. And I just want to have it in book form of some sort. And I was wondering how that can be done. I've investigated and haven't gotten very far. Thank you. I I don't self-publish. That's too too daunting. Well, Barbara, we're short on time. I'll pose your question to our guest, Nathaniel Wheelwright. Well, let's see. Boy, uh, (laughs) I don't know if I have an easy answer to that. You can certainly do a lot of stuff now by yourself. I wouldn't discourage you from self-publishing, um, and you could scan your art and put it, put it together and put it out online, and, and who knows how many people will pick up on it. But I would the other thing I would say is, uh, why stop with one year? Where it gets interesting is where you've added the second and then the third year. And even if there's been a gap, if you go back and make the same observations in the same place, that's, that's where learning really kicks in. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. All right, some of you may be thinking, who has time for all of this stuff? Retirees only? Well, coming up, we're going to talk to a naturalist in his 20s, and we'll take your calls, too. What changes have you seen in your backyard over the years? Join our conversation, and you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about ways we can become better connected to nature. My guests are Nathaniel Wheelwright, Professor Emeritus of Natural Sciences at Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine, co-author of the book, The Naturalist Notebook, and in studio, Brad Robinson, instructor of the Master Naturalist Program at the James L. Goodwin Conservation Center in Hampton, Connecticut. And joining us now is a Connecticut native, Matthew Messina. Welcome to our show. Hey, thanks for having me, Lucy. And I should say you're a son of one of our colleagues, but she had nothing to do with this program. <laughs> uh, well, we did hear about your work, and I was curious, uh, you're a Connecticut native, but you live in Maine. When did you first develop your interest in nature? I, th- I think I've always had one. Um, growing up in Connecticut, it's a, it is a fantastic place to grow up and be attuned to the natural world around you. There's lots of organizations um, like Brad's Master Naturalist Program and a couple others with the state um, that really got me started from a young age. Um, I did a lot of volunteering with a local nature center, Roaring Brook Nature Center in Canton, which a lot of people might be familiar with. Um, And I think I've just taken it and run from there. And when I decided to pursue a uh, career as a professional naturalist, I I knew that uh, Maine called me and I've lived up there on the coast here and there ever since. That's right. You're an expedition naturalist, writer, and artist. So uh, tell us a little bit about the work you do now. So a lot of people, it turns out, are interested in going to some of the far-flung regions of the globe, and I studied throughout college um, a, a broad range of natural history-related subjects. So I studied bio, um, botany and marine mammals, whales and seals and birds, uh, and it turns out there's a 
a lot of people who are really interested in going on safari in some of the more remote areas. And so now I work as an expedition guide on ships that go to the polar regions. So I travel um, kind of every year back between Antarctica in the in our winter and the Arctic in the summer. That sounds very exciting, but as we've been learning uh, during the hour, uh, we don't have to have a lot of money to go to right. these far-flung regions of the world to observe uh, uh, the wonders of nature around us. Uh, you're uh, in your 20s. Do you feel like uh, you have peers that are also connected like you are? Uh, absolutely. I think there's a lot of people out there who are really interested in this stuff. And actually, one of the biggest things that I try and impart to people who are guests on the programs that I work on is that they don't actually have to be traveling far away to appreciate nature. And in fact, you know, you can eat in your own backyard or in the parking lot at your work, you can find things that are interesting going on in the world around you. Uh, we were learning earlier um, from Nathaniel Wheelwright about uh, the importance of, of sketching. And is that how you began? Because you have a w- beautiful um, um, artwork uh, <laughs> on your website. I should say it's naturalist.com. We saw what you did there, uh, Matt Messina. Uh, but tell us uh, how you began to, to do illustrations. Uh, well, that part was sort of easy because both my parents are artists. And it um, so that was always encouraged when I was growing up. Um, I have pursued that throughout my entire life as well. And I think that, that it's a great way to be a naturalist is to really sit down and observe and sketch. And so I just kind of combine those two skills. And it turns out, you know, when you started off the show, you mentioned you had a list of names that you mentioned, including John James Audubon and Rachel Carson. And all of those people, in fact, were artists in their own right, either writers or painters or illustrators or, or even poets. And it's, uh, you know, to me, being a naturalist is actually a combination of kind of scientific pursuits and also artistic pursuits. And even in something like gardening, you know, it's a really broad definition of artistic Mm -hmm. in my mind. Uh, Brad Robinson, again, instructor of the Master Naturalist Program. I asked you earlier about uh, the types of students who apply. What can be done to get more young people involved and also a more uh, diversity in uh, the people who are applying for this program? Yeah, that's um, an ongoing issue that we've had. We we have had high school students, um, one in particular who was, was an excellent student, but we're always looking for more. Um, I'm hoping that we'll, as a result of this radio program, we'll get some young people to apply and some people with more diverse backgrounds, especially from the urban environments, to come in and, and apply for the program. Um, as I said before, there's, there's lots going on in cities, and we certainly want to get people who live in cities to be much more attuned to their natural environment. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're looking very hard and trying very hard to get a, a really diverse group of people to come and apply to the program. Uh, Nat Wheelwright, uh, in your book, uh, there is an excerpt, I don't know if it was you or uh, Baron who wrote this, about um, how someone in New York City uh, who uh, felt like they were alienated from nature, it actually was a little easier to figure out where to go uh, to be able to observe uh, nature. Uh, what are some tips for people who don't live in a rural surrounding? Same tips as for people who live in a rural surrounding. It's, it's just a question of being attentive to the world around you. Um, I was visiting uh, a brother who lives in Manhattan last year, and I was I was thinking about how how I would make the case for an urban environment, an urban ecology. And I was walking up some crowded street. I don't remember what its name was, and taxis were veering by and honking, and there was just chaos in the city. And there was a little teeny square of earth, kind of a small garden with a I guess a rhododendron surrounded by brick and concrete. 
And I thought, well, you know, at the very least, you could look at starlings and pigeons because they were all about. And then I looked at this square of earth, and there was a common yellowthroat, which is a migratory warbler. And it was in the middle of New York City on a tiny little bit of, of earth. So you truly can find, uh, you can find wonderful nature wherever you look. <clears throat> I, 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 I'm a great believer in having plan B and plan C, so when certain species that I love become harder and harder to see, well, I'm, I'm, I'm ready with uh, dragonflies or lichens. So uh, there's no place on Earth that has no life, fortunately, and um, so just get to know what is around you. You should see uh, the people in the newsroom, Nat, when a red-tailed hawk flies by the window. How excited we all get. Uh, before we uh, go, um, we had talked about, again, uh, many of us are uh, connected uh, to our phones, but there are some um, uh, websites and apps that, that are mentioned in the book, such as uh, iNaturalist, if people want to connect that way. Sure. Um, uh, the one thing about the, this book is, is, is deliberately... Um, an attempt to get people to slow down a little bit, pick up the pencil, and have a physical act of recording what it is you see. I, I'm quite convinced as a teacher of many decades that when we get ourselves physically involved with learning, including writing things down as opposed to typing it and sending it into the cloud, that it, it stores those memories in a different part of the brain. I'm not a neuroscientist, but that's my sense of what is going on because I can remember things better when I touch them, when I smell them, uh, and when I write things down. That said, you can also be part of the 21st century and you can upload your observations to iNaturalist or eBird or any of these, wonderful, one, any of these other wonderful citizen science uh, and websites. Nat, we'll have to leave it there, but thank you so much for joining us from Maine. Nat Wheelwright, again, co-author of The Naturalist Notebook. Also to our guests, uh, Matthew Messina and Brad Robinson. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown. More on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.